Our friends at the New Republic have a podcast, The Politics of Everything, hosted by TNR literary editor Laura Marsh and contributing writer Alex Perrine. The show explores the issues people are talking about and the political currents beneath their surface. On past episodes, Alex, Laura, and their guests discussed what, if anything, is considered disqualifying for political office today. Whether the modern-day authoritarian curious GOP meets the criteria of a fascist party. And if the hype and doomsaying around programs like ChatGPT is masking its real limitations and dangers. You can find the politics of everything wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. In the June issue, Nancy Lemon writes about her family's experience on safari. Yes, safari. They still have those. Lemon, author of the beloved cult novel Lives of the Saints, casts an unsparing satirical eye on her surroundings, her daughters, and herself. In this conversation with Harper's editor, Christopher Bea, Lemon discusses her years of obscurity and rediscovery, the lonesome yet self-aggrandizing act of writing, and her encounters with the legendary Walker Percy. Nancy Lemon, thank you for joining me. Oh, Chris, Chris, Chris. <laughs> um, so, uh, Nancy, you are um, the author of four novels, including, I can I call it, the cult classic, Lives of the Saints? Um, I don't know if that's a uh, yeah, that's of any fine. Feelings about um, and a and a really great nonfiction book length work of reported nonfiction, The Ritz of the Bayou, and you now have a work of nonfiction in our uh, current issue of Harper's Magazine called Lions and Daughters, which is um, about a family uh, safari. Yeah, yeah, my dear husband. It was all. His idea, it was, yeah, we weren't that um, excited about it, me and the <laughs> girls, but thank God he did it. It was, yeah, I got a lot out of it, such as the story. And 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 you were, you and the girls were unexcited about it for the girls being your, your two daughters right. for slightly different reasons. Yeah, but also we're just kind of girly and, you know, wild animals and camping and stuff is not, you know. If you're girly, that's not... That's not your favorite thing. No. Yeah. And I, I thought it was a little bit of a cliche also to go on an African safari. Um, I didn't say that in the piece because I thought that would sound entitled or something. Because, mm -hmm. you know, I got to go on an African safari that probably everyone wants to go on one. But anyway, I thought it was a little bit of a cliche. And then your daughters, in perhaps somewhat predictable generational uh, difference, also were concerned that it was a little problematic. Well, yeah. I mean, they they think I'm a racist. They think everyone is a racist. They're always, <laughs> you know, yelling at me that, uh, you know, capitalism, sexism, racism, every, the whole thing. It's just yeah. that generation thing. I mean, I've learned so much from them, of course. But I like to, I like to satirize them, and, right? And they also satirize me. So, speaking of the generational thing, uh, for the sake of any readers who are not familiar with your work, you can say a little bit about 
where you come from, which obviously has influenced a lot of your your work and a little bit about your history as a writer. Um, okay, well, um, I'm from New Orleans, and yes, that's kind of a permeating thing. It's a big, big deal. You, you, um, hopefully by osmosis, I, ha- I kind of possess many of its qualities. It's very strange and unusual, you know, and it's always kind of an advantage to be strange and unusual, I think. what? Oh, yeah, my history as a writer. Well, it's kind of interesting you should ask me that. Um, writing is, um, there's no reward. You can't do it for the reward. There is no reward. You know, we all have ego problems, so we all want applause. But actually, when you're doing it, you are the only one who's applauding because <laughs> you're alone in a room. And especially if you're doing a book, which I'm trying to do now, you're alone in your room for like massively long expanses of solitude, long periods. Yeah. So, um, but now that I'm older, I have more wisdom. And so, I know how to act better when I'm dealing with people like editors or agents. Well, you acted impeccably with me as an editor. I'll oh, say that. Chris, Chris, Chris. <laughs> it's so mutual, you know, right back at you. <laughs> so I, I, we haven't discussed this, um, but I just want to ask, what was your relationship to Walker Percy? Who is, of course, one of the you know the great Louisiana slash New Orleanian um, yeah. novelists of the twentieth century? Um, he was my hero. He was my total hero. You know how when you're young and you're reading, and then suddenly you come across a writer who makes you either want to write yourself or kind of more like see a way to you know sure. Because when you're reading a lot, um, you a lot of times, a lot of things you read, you adore and admire, but you know that's not within your range somehow. And but then then you come across some who are with it. You think, okay, I could that I could do. You know, you have to stay in your lane, kind of, I guess. But anyway, so he was like Lord Byron or something to me. He was just the at the top of the Pantheon. And he lived across the lake in Covington, Louisiana. It's across Lake Pontchartrain from New Orleans. And um, so then one day, um, his one of his nephews, who uh, was I went to high school with, he was a couple years older than me. And he asked me for a date or something. And, and I guess we became friends. And then he asked me if he took me across the lake to meet Walker one day. And so that was just, um, as they say, a life-changing experience. I wrote a piece about it that was in the Oxford American some years ago um, of what it, you know, what it was like to meet your actual hero. It's, it's like meeting, you know, Lord Byron, as I said, or something like that. It was very odd experience to have that anyway then um i didn't talk to him about writing okay when i met him um because 
I don't know. The South is kind of anti-intellectual and you don't really talk about intellectual things. For instance, when I was growing up and occasionally I would look at the New York Review of Books and I would think this is just literally too intellectual to read or cope with in any way. I mean, I don't feel that way anymore altogether, although sometimes, you know, a little bit. But um, so stayed off that subject, never talked to him about that for for uh, um, while I became acquainted with him, you know. And then um, when I had my first book contract or, you know, publisher, they sent it to him for a blurb and and he wrote to me and said, you know, you must be pretty sneaky because I didn't even know you wrote. And so then that was a beautiful thing. He gave me a blurb. Then we became closer friends because you could talk about writing with a Southerner. Um, and so we became closer friends. We corresponded a lot. Um, I was in New York. He was in Covington, Louisiana. And when I went home, I would often go to this uh, lunch on Thursday in Covington on Thursdays that um, he would have at this restaurant called Bijak's right on Lake Pontchartrain. And just really, he became my actual idol became my actual friend. You know, it was just yeah. very, it was like, after that happened, I, even though I was only like 28, I thought, you know, it's, there's no, it's not going to go any higher than this, my life, even though I'm only 28, <laughs> because nothing is ever going to be like this. Even when I met my husband, I hope he doesn't, you know, listen to this. I'm sure he won't. But even when I met my husband, I thought, you know, that's fine. But it's, the, this is downhill from here in terms of with, you know, the friendship with Walker Percy. And you guys, you both um, write predominantly in the fiction in um, this first person mode that is very sort of, I want to say voice driven, but is, is, is a lot about the expression of a, of a sensibility. And a personality, yeah. And a personality, yeah. You have, you have to quote unquote find your voice. That was one of his big things. And you also have to find your vehicle. You know, how are you going to, what's what's the vehicle that, that you're going to put your material in so you can drive it, you know? Um, but yeah, and so you have to, I think you have to look at your um, writing or yourself and your personality um, and and find out what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are and kind of go with your strengths, kind of run with them, you know? So I... That's the yeah. direction. I, yeah. Well, on on the finding of a form, I will say, I will admit to not having been super familiar with your work uh, until having it introduced to me by Emily Stokes, my friend and former Harper's colleague, who is the editor of the Paris Review now. And you had this piece in the Paris Review, Diary of Remorse, and I just started reading, and it was, you know. Mozart and Don Giovanni and Kierkegaard and Percy and all these things that are very important to me. And then this amazing, amazing voice. And I just fell in love with it. And I started reading and I've now, I think, read all of your books and um, 
ju- I just I'm such a huge kind of like kind of like your book the whole the whole is the it whole nine five yards feet. Five. Whole five the whole five feet. feet right I knew it was yeah <laughs> um because that's that's how like we're kind of the same person um because you were allowed to just write a whole book about stuff you were reading kind of and thoughts in your head and then I Emily Stokes my complete heroine allowed me to just uh write about my thought and you know like I was saying before when you're alone in your room like that you get kind of Napoleonic you get kind of grandiose because you're just you know you're applauding yourself all this time because no one else is going to do it mm-hmm. and and the other day you know it kind of hit me I noticed that the um magazines were having this like a music issue this month and and I read a piece in a major American magazine gosh I hope no one from that magazine is going to listen to this but um and it was so I had saved it because it you know it was about Mozart and stuff I just didn't put I wasn't piecing it all together and so I I was reading it yesterday and sometimes when you want to read a piece, but it's boring. I just read it from the back. I read it backwards because it's like a chore. So that's a way to make it more interesting and or to get through it. And I'm reading this piece and I'm thinking, okay, Don Giovanni, blah, 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 all this stuff. All these other magazines are doing music issues. And so because I had become all Napoleonic and grandiose, which is a big sign of doom, I started thinking, well, wait a minute. What if secretly all this was inspired by my story? I, I I think that may be so. I also think that's a great tip for reading this, the major American <laughs> magazine you speak of, which I have sort of stopped dutifully reading, and it's kind of reading it dutifully is the only reason one would read it. So, well, there um, are there are some people who are who are. Uh, regularly priceless, such as the yeah. movie critic. There yeah. are, there are, yeah. there are, yeah. absolutely. But um, I was going to ask on the question of form. So, so what you what you wrote for the Paris Review is done in this in this diary, you know, dated entry form. It's slugged as a work of fiction, which we can talk about or not, if that's interesting to you. How these genre distinctions are made. But your work of nonfiction for us uh, about the safari is also done in this um, diaristic form uh, by by day. And I'm wondering if that's kind of how you're working right now. You know, it's a funny thing about again about being a writer and the publishing biz. It's kind of random, you know, the contingencies of someone's career are kind of hang on chance. Um, So sometimes the gates swing open, but then other times they just clang shut for like years, decades, you know, and it seems kind of random, but right now they have swung open for Nancy Lemon. So I'm trying to actually take advantage of yeah. it in a rare moment of, you know, Balzacian calculation. Yeah. And Emily, I think, um, had this new dictate I heard about later that she doesn't even want to call the fiction 
fiction. She just wants to call it prose. She told me that. She said that she wants to have prose in the magazine and, and you know, verse or poetry in the magazine and then the interviews. And this idea of distinguishing between the fiction and the nonfiction is not even interesting to her. Yeah, yeah. So that was um, fortuitous, I guess, for me. But yeah, well, one thing about myself as a writer is when I was about 14 years old, I realized that I was keeping these hideously copious journals, diaries, because it was the way that I coped with my angst. And um, so after college or so, I kind of thought, you know, these hideously embarrassing, copious journals that I have, I mean, maybe I should try to turn that into something productive rather than just have it be this hideous habit. So it kind of is my whole natural bent there. And so lately, and and it's easier for me to go with my skills when I'm not feeling uh, self-conscious about it. For example, just putting a blank page in the typewriter, that's not my thing at all. But I have all these hideously copious journals where I can go back in and look for drama or material and, and you have to kind of keep it fresh. Like it is there. So that's kind of how I start sometimes. So if I can ask a question that, that may be too pointed for, for, for the podcast and you can let me know, but um, how, how does it feel to, to feel like at this point in your career, the, the, the doors are swinging open? in this way is it exciting is it you know or do you is there a part of you that's like why why couldn't this happen uh however long ago i mean to have someone like me for example to to tell you you know uh, how much um he loves uh books that you wrote 20 or 30 years ago and have so many people right now reading these books and loving them so much uh, you know and with not the lives of the saints lots of people read when it came out as well but you know is that do you, do you feel excited and gratified or um well i think you have to keep your cool and then also you're older so you finally have a little thing called maturity and so you you have more equanimity. It's, it's, it's not, you know, like when you're young, everything's going to hang on that because it's going to define your career or whether you're going to be able to make your way in your chosen profession. But, but when you're older, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, okay, sure. Yes. But, but, um, you know, that random thing. Yeah. It puts a slight, um, not a damper on it, but it just, I mean, it's good to have equanimity, you know, equanimity is the goal. Um, um, I feel like I I just have a mature, um, I mean, yeah, of course, but there's the random thing. So, you know, I seem to be stuttering at this point. There's so few writers who 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 get it early and then and then keep it throughout in the way that like a, an updike did or, or or a roth did it's like 
for most writers, I mean, most writers don't get it at all, but for the writers who get, you're going to get it for a period and then not, and you have to just keep doing the work. And it seems to me, I don't know, but um, I've seen people who get it early and then it goes away and then they have taught themselves to need it. Whereas if you don't get it early, then maybe you teach yourself not to need it and just to do the work to do the work. And then if all of a sudden at some point you get it, um, it's just, you know, something extra or I don't know. I think with me, it's like, okay, so I got it early, you know, but so then when I, when I, when I lost it, um, at first I didn't know that I had lost it. I just, I just, it's sort of, that's its own freak out, you know, to lose it. But I didn't know it was my, I had lost it. I thought it was the world, you know, the gates just clanging shut randomly. But I have come to believe that the fault was mine and that's a better way to go to approach life. And and all this, I don't want to focus too much on it because, as you say, it's all sort of contingent and chance, and it isn't ultimately what the work is about. Um, uh, I guess to to return to the work, you said you're working on a book now, and I wonder if you could say a little bit about that. Um. Well, mainly, you know, I I I mean, I have I have several. Um, unpublished manuscripts in the in the books in the drawer i guess we all do right chris i do yes yeah we all do so it's not like i haven't done um a book you know in many years it's not like that but i guess they were maybe they were failed efforts in one way or another so then i guess before i started working on this book i was just sort of smelling the roses kind of and and not really doing that or doing other things. Um, so now that I'm doing it again, the biggest adjustment is these incredibly long expanses of solitude that I think are required because it's such a massive concerted effort. And then I'm trying to avoid the doom, the doom that I encountered when the, when the doors clanged shut and how, and I think I, I know how, but um, okay. What, what's the question again? Oh, the question is just what you're working on now. Oh yeah. What am I? Well, you know, you're working on avoiding the doom. Well, yeah. I don't want to get too specific about it. You know how that is. Of course. course. But um, I'm trying to, so I'm, I'm answering your question more by focusing on how I'm doing it. And, um, yeah, I'm just trying to avoid the Napoleonic thing, you know, where you get all grandiose and you think you're, yeah. So you want to, you, you don't want to get yeah. like that. Um, but uh, yeah, so I guess I, yeah, is it, I guess it's going to be kind of like Emily's, um, word prose, prose, yeah. but it's also kind of fictiony. And, um, I finally have found the vehicle for it. Um, you know, I just wonder if this is true for all writers. I don't think it is, but with me, the real love affair is inward, you know, and, and you don't want to, you don't want to either have a, have to find a way to deal with that or, 
or but like I said before, just go with your strengths. You know, you, there's a lot of writers who can just put themselves into a whole everyone else's head and do everything from other people's heads and 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 go into these situations completely foreign to them. You know, the adage, um, write about what you know, but these other writers can write about what they don't know. I can't do that. I have to just stick with my little lane, you know? Yeah. Well, that's something, you know, uh, Percy is so good on on inwardness and on the, the extent to which the, and this is coming, I think, from his reading of Kierkegaard a bit, and then obviously from his Catholicism, but that the the really dramatic battle that is going on, the really dramatic story that is going on, is not going on out in the world, um, uh, but is going on sort of inside each of our hearts, um, and that's what he's sort of trying to work out on the page in each one of those novels. Yeah, and in a way, I would say that Emily inspired this book honestly one person emily emily stokes wow inspired this book and you know i think emily stokes must inspire a lot of books because um i was reading recently a review of claire detterer's new book where that started as a paris review piece right yeah yeah so this is what emily is able to do well, yeah, she's she's she is remarkable, and as I said, she she was uh, a colleague of mine here at at, at Harper's for many years. Um, wow. Um, well, Chris, speaking of Catholicism, what about your Catholicism? Um, well, as it happens, I I um, uh, I just am back when, as of when we are. Uh, recording this i don't actually know when it's going to air uh from having spent the weekend in rome uh where i met pope francis alongside uh martin scorsese there's a lot of uh in the film press right now the big story is that scorsese met the pope over the weekend and announced that his next film is going to be about the life of jesus and i was actually part of this delegation of catholic artists that met francis with him. Jesus. So, uh, so Chris, your Catholicism is alive and vibrant and it's a big part it, of you? It is. Yeah. Yeah. And um, are you, are you a convert or were you born? No, I am, I am a, I'm a cradle Catholic. I, 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 I um, am from a, you know, New York Irish family. Um, that is, you know, many, many, many generations on both sides, as far back as uh, anyone can count, um, Catholic. But I left the church for much of my adult life, uh, and then eventually wound back. So I, I, there's, there's a part of me that had a bit of the, the, the conversion experience. Because um, you know, Walker was a. Um zealous catholic convert yes yes the the two great 20th century american catholic writers are 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 also both southerners are of course o'connor and walker percy and she was a cradle catholic um lifelong catholic and he was a convert i mean i i always found that very mysterious in him i mean he died when i was about i don't know 34 or so so i didn't 
there's so many other questions I would like to would have liked to ask him, but I wasn't mature enough, you know, when I knew him. But but he did teach. I'm Jewish, and he did teach me more about what that means than anyone else ever had. He um, he had he. You know, you get some people who really love the Jews and really respect them and find them to be very mysterious. And that's how he felt about the Jews. And, you know, he felt that Catholicism was a Jewish, uh, Jewish sect, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of. And I'm like, I'm constantly, I'm always saying when I was with my in-laws, when I'm, you know, why can't we talk about Jesus? He's one of our boys. Shouldn't we be proud? And then they get all, freaked out and offended but why well i i um having said that that my family is irish catholic the name bea is which is a from a within my family line is a from german catholics from bavaria but it's a sephardic jewish name it's not a german name so there's some sense that after the expulsion of the jews from uh spain you know the the sephardic jews wound up all over uh, Northern Europe, uh, and um, at some point, some Bayas wound up in Bavaria, and um, at a, some other point, eventually converted to Catholicism, and then sometime in the 19th century, came to the U.S. This is another reason why we're the same person, <laughs> because I also am Germanic. I mean, I'm we're German Jews, yeah. So the the German thing is big, you know, because yeah. Germanic precision and um, uh, yeah. And um, how, I mean, it, that this is a kind of broad, almost sociological question, but um, New Orleans is as 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 you have mentioned in uh, other parts in in your writing is a is a is a very Catholic city. The South in general is not. Um, is not very Catholic, but um, in any case, the, the 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 South is not thought of as a place especially hospitable to to Jews. Um, well, the the population where I grew up in the entire state of Louisiana is overwhelmingly Catholic, French Catholic, and um, the Jews. I mean, the yeah. So you're an outsider when you're a Jew and and that's a good place to be if you're a writer, you know? And, but all my friends were Catholic. I wanted to see what else was out there. I wanted to see what, I didn't want to just stay with my tribe, you know? And I mean, I was assimilated quote unquote, but yeah. So, so there was this lifelong romance with the Catholics that I had and that I still have. Um, um, I just, and even like with the writers, like the British Catholic writers, like Waugh and mm-hmm. Graham Greene, I I love them because of their restraint and the pain is in the restraint. You can feel it so much more than when people are just, you know, babbling unrestrainedly. And I've always, yeah, felt this romance with the Catholics, but I can't fully figure it out. Yeah. I see why. I mean, I can see see um, from your work that you're a reader of Waugh, I think. I, I see yeah. a, a, the, in the, the early uh, 
the early wah, actually kind of the pre-conversion, the, just the, the funniest wah, basically, you know, because mm -hmm. you're, you're a very funny writer. Well, um, he was one of those people that when I read him, I said, oh, this is in my range, you know. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and by the way, sometimes lately I felt like I don't want to write for a world that doesn't have Martin Amos in it, you know, or Ames, mm -hmm. if I'm mispronouncing it American-wise, right? Yeah. How do you pronounce it? Ames? I say it Amos. I think it's Amos. Okay. Well, yeah. anyway. Yeah. You know what I mean? That was yeah. really, really sad. Yeah. He's also one of those writers, I mean, who, you know, because he was he was famous so early he was so associated with with youth i think with being a youthful with being the the kind of young turk and whatever and because he was a second generation novelist and everything and it does seem like it has um uh it is it has struck a lot of people very very hard um the 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 loss of him but the, it is also a loss of a particular kind of literary intelligence and i mean i i like his um i like more of his funny books you know and i don't read the real serious ones you know but because i consider my writing to be fizzy and frothy that's my you know that's how i would describe it although it's always better to have tragedy in there too the way wa does the early wa is sort of bitingly satirical i think in part, you know, the pre-conversion law, in part because he he can see everything that is wrong in his society, but he doesn't really have an idea what the solution is yet. Um, and it does become uh, somewhat uh, less interesting, possibly, once he has decided he knows what the, what the answer is. Um, I, I don't necessarily agree with that, Chris, because look at... Um, the ordeal of Gilbert Pinfold. Oh yes, that's a that's a wonderful. The loved book. one, and a handful of dust. I mean, a handful of dust. That's what I always read while I was giving birth. You know, because when you're in labor, you get to have drugs and everything, and there's these hours and hours where you're just kind of doing nothing. So, that's when I would read my favorite book at that time, a handful of dust, and. Yeah, it's tragic comedy that he does because it's hilarious, but then there's tragedy. And with Wah, it's just this, it's like taking a bath in sheer intelligence. You know, it's just so sharp. The precision of the language, that's Oh, yeah, I, the prose is he's, it's just magnificent. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, his first two books, The um, Vile Bodies and the other one, maybe that's what you're referring to as being Decline his and fall. funniest. But I don't agree. I, I, I think they're all incredible. The only you know conversiony ones would be like the the Saint Helena one or Saint Helena and Brideshead. I oh think right, Brideshead. Is. Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I may have decided I didn't actually mean what I just said. So, I really loved the trilogy about World War Two, the Men at Arms. Uh, well, see now that the, that one I I consider to be kind of willfully boring, like. He's just trying to be boring, so it's a little bit hard. To, I've never gotten all the way through it, maybe because you know he was so perverse. But also, he speaking was of, speaking of the Jews. You know, the Jews are funny. You know, so 
religion and writing i think oh yeah yeah so 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 do you think there is a a connection between the comic sensibility and let's call it the the religious sensibility i mean you know i just don't know what a religious uh, sensibility means i've been trapped for decades with some very very devout um, Jews. That sounded terrible as a sentence, but, but I mean, I just, it's, I, I feel like religion is very, very sacred and you either have it or you don't, but even if you don't, if you want it, it's your choice to try to find it. I just don't like it when people are too, um, controlling about their religious rituals and try to make you do, you know, it's like that Oscar Wilde quote, um, selfishness is not doing what you want to do it's making other people do what you want to do okay so that's my attitude about religion and i wonder if that connects up at all with the way that you approach um your writing because it occurs to me that in a certain way writing out of your own experience or the inwardness rather than trying to occupy a whole bunch of other um uh consciousnesses or whatever do the um is a way of just saying i'm gonna i'm gonna give you my experience and i'm not in a coercive way gonna say that this is what other people's experience is or this is what your experience should be i'm just going to work through my own experience i mean i just don't have enough imagination to get inside someone else's head you know i've got i've got some critics in my personal life in my family who say that I lack empathy, quote unquote. And, you know, so I often um, wonder if if that's true, because it is very hard. For, in fact, recently, I read in the Times or something that, you know, they have bots, they're teaching bots how to have empathy. And it's like, I'm a bot who do, hasn't been taught yet how to have empathy. I can only know myself i can't actually i can analyze other people but i can't just automatically you know Mm -hmm. well this has been i think what they call a wide-ranging conversation um thank you so much for doing it you have been magnificent (laughs) i never dreamt that we could keep a conversation going for 35 minutes 35 minutes that would just flow you know yeah um but 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 we did um, thank you, Nancy. Oh, Chris, Chris, Chris. <laughs> You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save.